0: Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner, and this show is designed for you. We talk about current events in the financial world that might impact your life. I give you some basic definitions and understanding of financial concepts. And in the last section, I answer your questions. Now, remember that all of the information that I give is educational, so you'll want to find a certified financial planner and run these ideas past them before you implement something that I say. So let's get started with the bulls and bears market and economic update. And this is for the week ending May 4th, 2018. The market was basically flat with the Dow ending by 0.2% down. S&P 500 was also down by about 0.24%. The NASDAQ had a good week and went up 1.26%. Gold was down just a little And oil was the biggest gainer of the week, with a 2.44% increase in the price. This is because the Saudis have decided to go ahead and let the price of oil rise. Usually, they try to keep the price of oil down. The price of oil has been down for so long, even the Saudis are hoping that it'll go up a little bit a barrel, and so they freed some um, tensions off of it, and oil went up quite a bit. The markets have had everyone on edge for quite a while, mostly because of volatility. 500-point movements up, followed by 500-point movements down in the Dow, just has everyone a little freaked out. But in general, everything appears to be relatively stable. Certainly, the market hasn't performed this year like it did last year, but it's mostly just really wide swings. That's somewhat a fact of the high level that the Dow is at. When you have a Dow well over 20,000, a 500-point movement is much less of an impact, actually, than when a Dow is at 8,000. So it's somewhat psychological, We're not used to movements that look this big. And on top of that, volatility has been out the roof. But don't panic. Everything is rocking along pretty much as it should be. And we'll just keep an eye on everything. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. In the legislative update, there's three things that I want to talk to you about today. And the first one goes back to the Department of Labor fiduciary rule that got overturned by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, after it got overturned, um, AARP, as well as other personal finance groups, made a motion to get the case taken to the next level. So because the Department of Labor failed to file an appeal when the Fifth Circuit turned it over, then these consumer groups stepped in to try to file an appeal to move it up to the next level of the court system, the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, that attempt failed. And so at this point, the Department of Labor fiduciary rule is still pretty much dead in the water Since AARP and the consumer groups have failed, I'm not really sure what the next step is for this piece of legislation, but honestly, right now, it doesn't look very good. Now, the next piece of, the next ruling, rather, that happened involving the fiduciary rule was the SEC's best interest rule that they came out with in the middle of April where they dodged the fiduciary word altogether and instead said that financial advisors should act in the best interest of their clients, that financial advisors shouldn't use the word advisor unless they were actually giving advice. So if someone is... Just simply acting as a brokerage house, if they're not giving advice, then they can't use the word advisor. If they do use the word advisor, there's some higher legal standards they're supposed to come to, but none of it raised the fiduciary level of standard. Well, needless to say, a lot of people don't like this rule. It's very vague, it's very ambiguous. It gives people who don't want to hold the fiduciary standard kind of some wiggle worm in there, Where, yes, there is a four-page disclosure document that the person who is handling your money is supposed to give you that discloses conflicts of interest and compensation. But my fear, along with everyone else's, is that that four-page document will just get lost in the mountains of paperwork that you sign when you open an account. So the SEC opened up a 90-day comment period when they released their idea, and this was in mid-April, and by May 1st, there had been 21 public comments. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. And of those 21 comments, 17 of them absolutely hated the SEC rule because they found it vague and confusing. The most popular criticism saying that it creates a double standard. Remember that investment advisors by law have to be fiduciaries, which means that they have to act in your best interest following legal guidelines, where this new... Um, non-investment advisor or on the brokerage side advisors just have to act in the client's best interest but without any legal teeth behind it. You might ask, why am I so upset when one is a fiduciary rule, which means you have to act in the best interest, and the second is a best interest rule? Aren't they the same thing? No, they're absolutely not the same thing because a fiduciary rule holds a legal standard, it sets a legal guideline. The words best interest don't actually have any teeth behind them. And it's much easier to catch someone not acting as your fiduciary as being able to prove that someone wasn't acting in your best interest. And so this enormous double standard with the long disclosures that no one is actually going to see in real life has the public upset. But I'm really upset about something else, and that's the fact that only 21 people bothered to comment during the two-week period from the time when the SEC released this document and when this article went to press. Because I found this in financial advisor, and they were listing out the number of comments that there had been. So in two weeks, only 21 to one human beings cared enough to comment. So if you felt so inclined, it might be really good for you to go in and read this SEC document for yourself, read commentary about it, and then put a comment. I'm not going to tell you what to comment. I have strong opinions about this, but I want you to comment because what really makes me sad in all of this is the lack of interest, the lack of understanding. I think the 21 comments proves what's really wrong with this system in the first place, which is that consumers genuinely do not understand that when they give their life savings to someone who calls themselves a financial professional, that person may or may not be acting in their best interest. They may have conflicts of interest where they're getting paid additional money to recommend one product over another. They may have compensation structures that the clients don't understand that aren't disclosed. Now, everyone gets paid. No one does this for free. But it's only fair for the consumer to have an absolute solid black and white knowledge of how much money. The advisor is getting paid and where that money is coming from. So this would be an interesting thing for you to go in and do more research on. I'm not going to tell you to do it, but I am going to say it would be really lovely if you looked at it and considered going in and commenting on it either way. If you like the rule, you should comment that way. If you feel that the rule creates confusion among consumers, you could comment that way. But take action. Don't let this just happen to us with nobody taking the time to get involved. So after those two pieces of fairly grim news, I do have great news to report, which is that the CFP Board of Standards has issued their new Code of Ethics, the standards under which any CFP certificate has to operate if they're going to keep their designation. Now, Prior to this revision, the CFP board said that anyone who is giving financial planning to a client has to act as a fiduciary, and it is the Certified Financial Planners Board of Standards, so that makes sense on one level. The problem comes in with the definition of financial planning. And so if someone isn't providing holistic financial planning, there was a way to skate around that fiduciary rule. Well, the CFP board, in light of everything that's been going on over the last year, has drawn a really bright line in the sand. And they said that any time a CFP certificate is using their CFP certification and doing anything related with your money— So that might be just simply acting as a portfolio manager, which really isn't financial planning, but it's why a lot of people go see financial professionals. Or maybe that planner is just doing a retirement projection. Or maybe they're just selling an insurance policy. Anytime they are working with your money, they have to hold a fiduciary standard. There's no exceptions. There's no middle ground. So the good news that we have is that this designation has said no. If you're going to use our designation, you're going to act as a fiduciary to your clients all of the time. Now, it will be interesting to see how this plays out because a lot of major firms that have not been supportive of the fiduciary standard do have a lot of reps who hold the CFP certification. So the goal and the hope is that that may bring the industry up. The bad outcome would be that those organizations no longer allowed their reps to use the CFP marks, We're hoping that isn't what happens. We're hoping that the CFP board saying, no, if you're going to use our marks, you're going to act as a fiduciary all of the time, will cause the organizations possibly to adopt a fiduciary standard just simply to allow their reps to keep using the marks. This is still very new. It's still very early. We'll have to see how it plays out. I'm sure I'll have other legislative update episodes to let you know what happens in practice. But for now, at least you know that if you're working with a certified financial planner practitioner, that person has to uphold a fiduciary duty to you. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to Ask Peggy About Your Finances. My name is Peggy Doviak, and this is the Plan Your Prosperity section. And today, I want to talk to you about risk tolerance. Before you can create a portfolio allocation, which means before you can decide how to take money that you have and turn it into a blending of stocks and bonds, you need to figure out what your risk tolerance level is. Typically, these risk tolerance levels are derived through a questionnaire that you filled out. So if you've ever had an investment account, you've probably completed a document where you had to answer some questions, like what are the goals of the money? And how much would you be upset if the portfolio went down? You know, sometimes risk tolerance forms are very short. Sometimes they're long. But I want to go into the nuts and bolts of your risk tolerance a little bit more with you today to help you understand how you need to look at this, how you need to think about it, and why your risk tolerance is really important in guiding how your financial plan ends up working. So first of all, your risk tolerance will be specific to a goal that you have. For example, you might have a retirement account, and you might have young children who have a college funding account. So when you're looking at the time horizon for the college funding, it might be noticeably shorter than the the time horizon that you have for your retirement. If you have older kids, you may just have three or four years before they're going to college. The shorter the time horizon, generally, the lower your risk tolerance will be because you don't want to be highly invested in a a stock market in case you have a major decline at exactly the wrong moment. So a lower risk tolerance would have the portfolio invested more conservatively. Now, if you're in a college account that has a target date fund, typically you put the age of the child in, and then that target date fund becomes systematically more conservative as the child reaches the age of 18. If you really want to go for the strong growth and keep it all in stocks, even when the child is 16 or 17, you can, but you need to know that the risk of doing that is much higher than if the child was two or three. So perhaps you have a college fund and it has a fairly conservative risk tolerance profile. At the same time, you have a retirement account. And if you have teenage children, you're probably many years yet from retirement. So your retirement account could have a much riskier risk profile than the college funding account did. So as you're filling out your risk tolerance profile, it really needs to be related to the goal that you're planning for remember, financial planning is all around setting goals. And few of us have money in the stock market for absolutely no good reason. We're saving for a retirement usually. We might be saving for college. We might be saving for something else. But usually, there's a time set to it. So as you're looking at your risk tolerance, remember, you might have more than one of them. Additionally, you need to understand that we earn a return based on the risk that we take. The only reason we make money in the stock or bond market is that we are taking the risk that what we've invested in goes up in value or pays dividends or in other ways provides us with the return we are expecting. Sometimes I have clients come in and they say, well, I don't really want to take a lot of risk because I'm really afraid of the stock market, which I completely understand. And then two sentences later, they tell me they want to make a lot of return on this money. And sometimes they'll even put it into one sentence. I want to make a lot of return, but I don't want to take a lot of risk. And I will tell you that that is actually impossible to achieve. You can try to earn a return, or you can take very little risk, but you can't do both at the same time. You earn your return because you've taken the risk. Think about it from the bond market perspective for a minute because it's actually easier to understand it on that side. Let's say you wanted to go get a loan, and let's say you had fabulous credit, and the loan is for a very short period of time well, it's likely the loan that you would get would have a low rate of interest associated with it because the lender isn't taking a lot of risk by lending you the money. Now, if your credit is really bad and you need the money for a long time, you're going to pay more interest because it's riskier for that person to lend you money. Well, the same thing happens in the bond market, except this time you're the lender. So when you see something that is paying a high yield, a high dividend, that's a suggestion to you as the lender that you're taking some risk by lending whatever you're lending the money to, the money, whether that would be like a high yield Um, corporate bond funds, sometimes called a junk bond fund, where companies that are okay, but they don't have great balance sheets, need to borrow money, and so they issue a bond. Well, that bond has to pay a dividend, a yield. And if their credit isn't great, then they're going to have to pay more money to entice you to buy the bond. So when you think in terms of you as the borrower, and then you flip it around and think of yourself as the lender in the bond market, it makes sense why when you see something and it's paying a great yield, maybe that means you're taking more risk. That doesn't mean it's a bad investment. It just means that you need to understand that it's a riskier investment. And even though it looks great on paper, there may be things in there that you're really not seeing. Now, there are some annuity products out there that are fixed indexed annuities where you're guaranteed a percentage rate of return on the account. They say you can't lose money because you're guaranteed at some base market rate, but you're also capped at the market return. So the way that company is managing the risk is they're not letting you participate in the great years that the stock market has sometime. Now, 2017 was a remarkably high year, and no one can count on that anytime time again in the foreseeable future. It was an outlier. It was a staggeringly good year for the stock market. So If you had had the fixed indexed annuity, you would have been capped at that rate, like maybe, say, an 8% or a 7% or whatever the terms of the annuity said, and all of that additional growth that the market had, you wouldn't have gotten. Instead, the annuity company puts that in their pocket, and then they use that to cover the years that aren't so good. Additionally, there's a lot of fees associated with fixed index annuities. So even though you get that guaranteed rate, it comes at a pre- pretty healthy price you want to be sure that you understand it. Just because something has a guarantee, you need to read the fine print because the market works because you're taking risk. And any time that risk is going off the table, there's a lot of other things coming into play that you absolutely need to be sure that you understand before you decide that this is something that you would want to own. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And my question today comes from Angela, who says, I'm just about to graduate from college and I have a job. What are the first steps that I should take? And I want to begin by congratulating Angela and all of the other graduates who are going to walk the stage this month. You should be so proud of yourselves. It is so hard to get a college degree. You have taken hours and hours of time spent lots of money and you should be so proud of yourself and I am proud of you for completing this task. So let's start out with by saying, hooray for you. So now that you're on the other side of college, if you had student loan debt and you're not going on to graduate school, so you don't have a way to defer it, I want you to begin to pay your student loan debt back as quickly as you're required to do it. Student loan debt can be really painful debt to deal with. And the biggest problem comes from people who decide that they just aren't going to start making payments yet. Well, you have 270 days to make a payment. And if you don't make a payment from the time it's due for 270 days, then your account goes into default. And then at that point, the government can garnish your wages. They can even take your Social Security check once you're in retirement 500 years from now. You also can have your tax refund garnished. So not paying your student loan debt back is not an option. Work out the payment plan, keep the payments where you can afford it. Remember that the interest on the student loan debt is at least deductible. Now, if you don't have a lot of other debt to pay off, paying extra on your student loans is great because unless your tax bracket is 100%, which it never is, deductible debt is not great debt. So you're always better not paying the interest, not having to pay back the student loan, than you are saving that debt because the interest is deductible. So if you can pay some extra on it, that's fine. You don't have to. Create a budget you can live on. Include that student loan debt as part of it. Also, try to start saving an emergency fund. You'll hear a financial celebrity say you need a six-month emergency fund, which is six months of your non-discretionary bills laid back in a bank account in case something goes wrong. The problem with this advice is it's so overwhelming that people don't even start doing it. Six months of your bills is a huge amount of money. So I want you to begin by saving a two-week emergency fund. I want you to look at your monthly bills, I want you to cut that number in half, and then I want you to start saving towards that financial goal. And once you've met it, you have two weeks of bills covered. Now, this probably isn't really enough, but it's a start, and you've got more money in the bank than most people do. Once you save your two-week emergency fund, then go ahead and save another two-week emergency fund, and just add to it, but start with a number you can look at without choking. If you have a job that has a retirement plan, you should look at the plan to see if it offers a match for contributions. And if possible, I want you to contribute into the plan at least as much as your company matches, because it's an easy, 100% return on your investment. You put in a dollar, they put in a dollar. Now you have $2. So try to start participating in that. And then finally, continue to live frugally for a while. You've been a college student. You're used to ramen noodles. Keep living that way if you can for a couple more years or a couple more months, as long as you can stand to do it, and then save all that money. Because once you start saving that money, it becomes a habit and it becomes a way of life. And it's going to make your life so much easier if you can begin by starting ahead rather than being behind for your entire working career. So go ahead and live below your means. Yes, you can go ahead and splurge on something. I'm not crazy. I know you're going to do that anyway. But just be really careful, really cautious that what you do is in your financial best interest and you don't spend every single dime you make just because you can. This will help you start your 20s in a great financial situation, and you'll be so glad later that you took the time to do it. Well, I can't believe how fast the show went today. We had a lot to talk about. Certainly, there'll be more about all of these fiduciary rules coming up. I want you to look at your risk tolerance and see if you've broken it down by goals, because that will really help. If you have a question, go to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy. Send me the question. I'll try to answer it. Have a great week. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.